0: Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership.
1: The past months have been a lesson in macroeconomics and supply chain vulnerability. It's one thing to not be able to purchase toilet paper at the grocery store, but it is a completely different matter to have staff at risk due to lack of PPE. Today, we will be discussing healthcare system supply chains and lessons learned from the pandemic. Flow and redeployment of resources directly impact the quality and quantity of healthcare. Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, an army marches on its stomach. Had the emperor of France led a hospital today, he might have said, hospital treats patients in its PPE. Now is time to look at mission critical supplies and how their availability can be disrupted. Let's begin. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Tsai. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chen School of Public Health. Dr. Sai is also a member of the faculties of the Department of Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. Thomas Sai, welcome to Sound Practice. Great, Mike, uh, really uh, great to be with you and looking forward to our conversation today. I am as well, thanks. So I'd like to start with the, the basic economic understanding of, of supply and demand. When looking at supply chain, some people may assume that demand in healthcare is, is fixed, but that's not been the case with COVID-19, correct? That's right. And One of the challenges
2: about the COVID-19 pandemic is the multiple types of demand shift uh, that really happened over the course of pandemic. And I think it's helpful to think of it in a few different buckets. You have the underlying uh, demand uh, changes uh, brought about by the actual cases of COVID-19 and some of the spillover effects from a clinical standpoint. So we saw the Peaks of cases in the spring, so especially in April and May, um, then in the fall, and then in the winter of 2020 to early 2021. So the rise in the COVID 19 cases has had spillover effects on the non COVID conditions as well, in terms of changing the patterns of care. But the demand was also not just uniformly national. There was a lot of change in demand that was geographic, where the concentration in COVID 19 and therefore the demand on hospital capacity utilization and material supply chain you know was focused on the northeast you know early on but it was a broad national effect as everybody was uh, trying to prepare um know, especially for that first wave and then we saw a shift towards the south and southwest and then in the winter towards the west and and upper midwest so i think there there's the the dynamics of the of the disease and the pandemic itself but there was also the changes um on the health policy side, and, and you know, especially early on in the pandemic, there were wider um, uh, state-mandated policies on canceling elective surgery, for example, to create a, you know surge capacity on the inpatient side, and especially for ICUs, and, and, and decrease potential demand on, on ventilators. So there's there, there's that external factor. There's also the the internal factor in terms of how you think about um, the internal demand on. Uh, hospital beds versus emergency department beds versus uh, pacu anesthesia recovery units could they be repurposed for uh, operating room patients for recovery or repurposed for uh, for higher level icu care Um, so there's there's a lot of shifting demand um, you know internally as well thinking about uh, optimizing the site of care in, in hospitals versus shifting some of the procedures to um, to uh, you know, smaller sit hospitals in the system, or to or office-based practices, or ambulatory surgical centers, uh, so that you know creates another dimension of shifting demand. And I think one of the most important parts, and probably underrealized um, or underappreciated, I think as we're thinking about the healthcare system and and hospitals and, and and networks, is that the patient actually has a strong you know voice in, in the demand uh, for healthcare in terms of there's you know some of the research we're doing looking at changes in patterns of elective surgical admissions versus non-elective uh, versus emergent and trauma admissions shows that there's likely a, a huge signal of changes in, in patient level discretion um, in terms of, you know, when they want to come in or not. And, you know, there's um, some analysis shows that there's large variations um, along many such demographic, you know, climes, including urban versus rural, racial and ethnic, you know, uh, you know uh, changes in terms of how elastic a demand for uh, hospital level care is. So yes, lots of profound challenges in in understanding the demand side, complex, uh, dynamic, um, and and along multiple different fronts.
1: You mentioned that obviously a number of elective procedures were postponed during the pandemic in 2020 and early 2021. this presented, it seems to me, an opportunity to utilize physicians that were not performing those procedures. Do you think that opportunity was properly taken? How could healthcare system better take advantage of, of some physicians that had been idled by the suspension of elective procedures?
2: Yes, I think we all realize that one of the most um, precious resources, um, you know, and in, in, is our human capital. Um, uh, you know, during the course of the uh, pandemic, and I think there's a few ways to think about this. Um, there's one way to capitalize on uh, idle physicians, for example, is to embrace a more team-based approach. You know, in our hospital, we have examples of breast surgeons, for, um, for example, who were part of infection control teams, you know, helping um, residents providing frontline care into uh, medical COVID patients, you know, making sure there were proper donning and doffing of PPE, as an example. Um, but that uh, is one very powerful way of, of, of contributing to the team effort. But I think if that was the, the only way that idle surgeons or physicians were contributing, I think that's selling um, uh, short the ability for true physician leadership um, in, in healthcare systems, um, and. I, you know, again, speaking as a as a general surgeon, um, you know, it's one of the few specialties left where we truly have a 360 view on the healthcare system. So any given day, I see patients in my clinical office, um, I'm operating the operating room, I'm seeing my, my own surgical patients in the recovery rooms. I'm seeing consults in the emergency room. If I, there's a complication, I'll, I'll be in the ICU rounding on one of you know my surgical patients and dealing with primary care referrals and specialist referrals. So it's one of the few specialties where there is this uh, you know, touch point with all the other parts of 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 inpatient and outpatient care. So I think there's an opportunity to draw on that expertise, but also, that sense of uh, generalism. And I think as physicians become more and more specialized, the pandemic has also revealed the value of um, of resiliency, not just in the healthcare system, but in terms of our physicians as well, and being able to cross train. Um, and I speak to this on a personal level, even though I'm a you know, minimally invasive bariatric surgeon that was on my healthcare systems list to be a COVID ICU attending because I was Close enough to my residency training, and in general surgery, we spend a whole year in the ICU as a second-year residents, and still, you know, uh, work with our intensivists to manage our patients. So I think there's a, a realization that specialization is important, but there's also an important role for uh, people who can connect the dots and 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 draw on that um, ability to uh, to to pinch hit or you know to to be that sort of swing player on a a, a basketball team. Um, And we see that in sports and and I think that's important to think about in in healthcare as well. The third part is that there's a way to reimagine how we deliver surgical care. I think um, the acceleration to telehealth is uh, a huge um, trend that was waiting for a shock to the system to create the cultural change, the reimbursement change uh, to make that happen to um, and now in our practice, over forty percent of our uh, office visits are now virtual. And the technology was there. Um, um, it wasn't like you know there wasn't Zoom before the pandemic, or or Microsoft Teams, or all these other ways to you know or doximity to to, to use telehealth um, and leverage telehealth. But you needed the right uh, conditions to do so. Um, so I think those are the ways to really think about you know incorporating physicians into a broader hospital-wide team, drawing on um, the ability to be generalists in a very specialized world, and also uh, reimagining and, and in a very critical and, and creative way on what's worked in the past and what's going to work in the future in terms of what the future care delivery looks like.
1: Well said. Can you talk about systems interdependency and unintended consequences that flow from interdependency? Yes, I think there's, you know,
2: I in a lot of uh, role for unintended consequences. So in my research life, you know, when I study Medicare payment policy and the and, and effect of, you know, payment and delivery system reform to health policy, we focus on policy evaluation, whether the uh, policy was effective or not, but also think about the unintended consequences of, of those policies. And, you know, there's a strong history of research. And I think many of us have also seen that in our day-to-day practice. And um, there's a great study out of the University of Pennsylvania looking at uh, triaging decisions in the intensive care units. So as ICUs became uh, more and more um, uh, busy uh, and, and filled, um, and then this is research that was pre-COVID, and I think we've also seen this happen in the post-COVID world, um, that uh, in order to manage that bottleneck in the ICU, there was a, uh, decrease in the length of stay for ICU patients So trying to shift them out of the ICU, downgrade them to a lower level of uh, monitoring and care. But the unintended consequence of that was it ended up actually creating more um, readmissions um, uh, back to the hospital, back to the ICU. So then you created yet not just another demand, uh, but even more unpredictable uh, demands on, on ICU capacity. So, you know, that's one example of uh, the economics and health services literature that's really shown how important it is to think about the unintended consequences along the whole spectrum of care. And I think the way we structure healthcare and, um, and management and, and, um, and, and cost centers tends to be pretty siloed. But, you know, the hospital is a large, large ecosystem and the healthcare system is a large Uh, uh, Ecosystem. And I think it's important to think about these interdependencies, you know, both on a broader level, but also even within within the hospital is thinking about it, really from the patient's experience. So I think we think about it in terms of our own, um, you know, clinical silos, you know, know, once I operate, it becomes, you know, some, you know, the anesthesiologist's responsibility and in, in, uh, in the recovery room. And then it becomes my responsibility again, once they go from recovery room back to the surgical ward, but after they get discharged, it becomes, you know, um, you know, the outpatient teams. But if you think about the patient, all of this is, is one continuous uh, experience and, and continuum of care. And, you know, and if I think if we shift our mindset from thinking about uh, bottlenecks uh, from a you know management standpoint, uh, but think start thinking about it you know from the patient standpoint. Then those interdependencies become a lot more obvious. Um, hmm. um, so I think you know, again that renewed focus on the patient experience through the healthcare system uh, will really you know bring uh, bring light to that.
1: In your twenty twenty Harvard Business Review article. You discuss the need for healthcare systems to forecast short-term demand. This, to me, sounds like it might be a difficult task. Can you talk about ways this can be accomplished?
2: Yeah, it is uh, very challenging, Mike. And and I think um, you know, there's a saying that um, all models are wrong, and some models are useful. Now, um, was true for forecasting um, COVID-19 pandemic. And um, as part of my work at the Harvard Global Health Institute, we had uh, helped. Um, uh, Develop and collaborate um, uh, on a few uh, uh, COVID forecasting models, um, uh, for example. And um, so I, I know, you know, uh, uh, firsthand how challenging this. Uh, but it's also challenging, you know, uh, for forecasting hospital volume um, and and, and short term demand because going back to the the first question you asked, there's so many different uh, factors that uh, can influence demand that you know are outside the your immediate control, both the underlying disease, changing public policy, uh, changing clinical bottlenecks, and also changing uh, patient preference and sensitivity around uh, if they need the care or when they need the care. Um, so I think that makes it very challenging. Um, but going back to our last question is if we go back to thinking about um, the whole continuum of care, um, then the, the ads, Allows for more precise integration of key information into your short-term uh, demand forecasting. I think historically we've relied on on trends to forecast our, our demand. Um, looking at you know our June 2021 forecast is you know controlled for what the prior you know June 2020 June 2019 forecasting. So We've often relied on historical volume. Uh, to forecast uh, uh future demand you know adjusting for obviously you know changes and referral patterns and, and networks and 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 that but again what the pandemic has shown is really how fragile um, some of that um, some of those assumptions can be so if you're again going back to thinking about the patient perspective that historical volume um, is is one way of looking at it but a more nuanced way is, is really thinking about the patient perspective and I think that ultimately, if you build that from the ground up to forecast demand, um, you know, underlying the prevalence of disease in the community, uh, patient preferences for for, for timing uh, of care, layering on, um, uh, you know, hospital level factors. I mean, I think all that, you know, plays a really important role. You know, as a surgeon, you know, one thing that's um, always stood out to me is, again, we forecast our, our, uh, our, hospital volume or volume again based off of historical surgeon level operative volume right but um, as a bariatric surgeon our patients have you know three to six months of workup and insurance pre-approval before you can book a case and COVID-19 threw a whole wrench into that you know pre-approval process so in terms of thinking about the very narrow example for a bariatric surgery um which obviously has you know, implications on hospital or volume and supply utilization and, and bed capacity. Um, then you have to kind of think outside the hospital is, you know, you know, are the patients uh, being seen as new surgical evaluations. You know that the number of new patient referrals and new patient visits now is really going to determine the volume, you know, three to six months from now from the attrition, you know, sort of standpoint and being able to work uh, through their insurance approval so. Um, I think this is an opportunity for um, you know healthcare organizations to think about demand across all the sites of care in the healthcare system, um, as opposed to just thinking about within their own. Um, you know, so your hospital volume is really going to depend on um, your outpatient ambulatory visits. And have, has there been a shift of telehealth visits, for example, um, and sort of you know substitution of care of inpatient to the outpatient? Um, so there's you know, I think again a much broader awareness of the interdependencies. Um, but I think that also means as we think about forecasting demand is to account for these interdependencies because your historical volume may not matter um, because you know, if, if patients again in the surgical demands aren't being seen in the clinic or aren't being seen by primary care, so aren't being referred you know for for a specialist visit, Know, that has these downstream implications in terms of the cascade on 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 demand
1: utilization it strikes me that when trying to predict um, future demand from the patient's perspective that social media may be of some assistance do you know if there's any efforts um, along those lines
2: yes i mean There is research looking at sentiment analysis and natural language processing of, you know, people's comments um, on social media. Uh, There's actually work that we've uh, partnered with, uh, with uh, Google Health uh, to look at symptom search trends. Uh, You know, we were doing this to forecast um, uh, 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 COVID-19, but then that data was also part of the uh, another collaboration we had with the Google Cloud team to incorporate the symptom search into a forecasting model in hospital and ICU capacity uh, in addition to COVID-19 uh, cases. Um, so I, I, there's some important lessons that we've learned and we're in the process of writing that up. You know, there was a, the prior history of uh, the Google flu trends model, which used uh, individual uh, search terms to be able to more rapidly predict uh, rises in, in flu emissions, for example, uh, uh, with the flu data. We applied a similar approach to uh, COVID nineteen um, to develop a forecasting model uh, that was fairly accurate using a uh, constellation of symptom search queries um, in Google uh, as a search engine. But one of the challenges we realize is that um, this is as much a sign of um, of true underlying symptoms, so sort of kind of machine learned epidemiology, but it's also a capturing a lot of behavior. Um, so in the in March, April, May, we were tracking searches for anosmia, you know, loss of smell, which is a, a, a symptom relatively unique to COVID nineteen, especially during its earlier phases. Um, not only were there peaks in, in New York and Massachusetts, uh, where there was a high burden of COVID nineteen cases, but there was a huge national interest in uh, volume of search queries. You know, people in North Dakota were trying to learn about COVID and and in searching for anosmia as well. So from a forecasting standpoint, we realized we had to uh, subtract the true signal from the background noise. So uh, doing uh, the analyses by subtracting out the the national average interest in in generating very local forecasts. Um, So I think that's a um, specific example of um, not just social media but how we were using uh, people's um, Uh, internet search behavior as a signal of uh, potential demand for healthcare.
1: Uh, That's fascinating. When most people think of supply chain issues, they think of items like masks and gloves or ventilators, but staff is also part of the supply chain. And I think you alluded to that in one of your earlier answers. Tell me about lessons learned from staffing during COVID-19. Yes, Mike.
2: I think we've realized that he, we always knew this, but the human capital is really the most precious uh, uh, resource uh, for a hospital. Um, and you know that patient-doctor, that clinician-patient relationship is invaluable. And unlike PPEs, where even though there was a massive shortage, and you can uh, very rapidly stand up um, you know, production and manufacturing of masks and. Uh, face shields and, 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 and recalibrate production lines uh, for that. Uh, for training clinicians, the, the timescale is on a, on a matter of years. You can't just um, turn on the dime the way you can with uh, physical material uh, for uh, for the healthcare sector. Um, you know, and you can produce a vaccine in under a year, right, for the new uh, you know uh, virus, for the new pandemic. Um, but it takes years of training to train um, uh, clinicians in a, in a sort of formal way. So I think there's two lessons. There is one is um, you have to invest in your human capital um, for the long term, and that's true not just for uh, uh, physicians. That's true for all that you know is needed to take care of the patients. You know, we saw a huge shortage of, of respiratory therapists, for example, during the early phase of the of, of the pandemic. Um, and we've seen acceleration of burnout. So that's just about building up your pipeline, but also factoring how um, there may be increases in attrition um, in terms of your frontline uh, care staff. And um, so, you know, being able to plan ahead um, and that may mean sort of promoting the ideas of sort of more broad based generalism in sort of a more specialized world um, and, you know, individual level resiliency and really supporting are you know nurses and and clinicians um, you know during the pandemic but the third way is that um, while the traditional paradigm of training um, you know in terms of residency for example for physicians is very long the pandemic has also shown the other side we can have really rapid dissemination of information so yet while training takes a long time and you have to invest in that pipeline there's also ways to rapidly uh, learn and, and reskill individuals. Um, and the rapid dissemination of research findings, for example, on COVID-19 um, uh, through preprints and through early publications from, uh, from journals, um, you know, I think is you know, one example. There's obviously a the broader discussion about information and misinformation. Um, but the second part is that there's also created these larger both regional and international collaboratives to share best practices. And I remember even in the early days, you know, I was part of a Facebook group for, for clinicians on Facebook, you know, including nurses and, and, and physicians and RTs and dentists and everybody uh, to share you know, their early experience on COVID-19 and which ICU protocols worked. You know, I collaborated with my surgical colleagues at the University of Michigan um, and Stanford and other places to share, you know, these were what we were doing um, um, you know, to uh, you know, before we knew a lot about COVID-19, like, do you do you need a smoke evacuator for laparoscopic surgical cases to prevent, you know, you know virus dissemination? and you know, what kind of masks you're wearing? So there was a very rapid real-time learning that was happening as well. So uh, to not uh, grow that would be a missed opportunity. So while we need to uh, increase our pipeline, um, the second part is also we need to think about uh, also building on these newer Collaborations to to uh, retool, and, re-kit, and uh, rekit our 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 clinicians and, and nurses. A broader comment, Mike, is I think a lot of what I've said over the last um, uh, few questions or few responses is really we need to rethink. Uh, there needs to be a paradigm shift about our healthcare systems, um, and in terms of thinking about a, a margin of safety, um, you know my. My daughter has a little stool for her play table. It's rated to, to, to 80 pounds. And I sit on this, and I, let me tell you, I'm not 80 pounds. Um, Be at this table, you know, this chair has not collapsed, right? Because in, in the manufacturing world, there's an idea of a margin of safety. You, you over-engineer um, your products um, uh, to allow for that margin of safety. So when you have you know, me sitting on a chair with 80 pounds, the chair doesn't collapse. But we don't have that same notion in healthcare. And I think it's there's been this um, shift uh, towards lean, man, lean management and, and, and just in time. And I think there's may have swung in certain, some cases too much to one direction. And we need to recalibrate a little bit to thinking about for what service lines, what supplies, what uh, clinical uh, encounters um, we need more just in case type inventory, but really need to build in that resiliency, that margin of safety, um, so we can actually uh, weather not just pandemics, but there's, you know, you know I, 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 I work in Boston and, you know, there's, um, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing is an example of you know, there, are, there are these unplanned, huge shocks to our healthcare system. And we've been thinking mostly in the context of, of natural disasters. Um, or or in, in human disasters locally uh, but even in a more globalized world um, you know everything's interconnected so as a as a surgeon I remember when we had um, the hurricane down in Puerto Rico and knocked out one of the mesh manufacturing uh, plants so you know we didn't have mesh available for doing hernia surgery so again thinking about the the margin of safety both within our own service lines within the hospital, within the healthcare system, but more broadly,
1: I think is, a, is a, a needed paradigm shift. The Professor Amartya Sen won a Nobel Prize in economics for his work on famines. And Professor Sen found that famines were not caused by a lack of food, but a lack of resources. And maybe this is dovetailing into what you were just uh, talking about, uh, Tom, that when it comes to healthcare supply chain shortages, is the problem one of distribution of resources and not the overall lack of resources? Yes, I think it really is um,
2: a, uh, a lack of distribution. And again, it's a lack, going back to the earlier question, is a lack of that concept of resiliency and, and, and needing a margin of safety. You know, Lots of new stories now of, of manufa- you know, textile manufacturers who retooled uh, to make masks and face shields now who are losing money because you know hospitals have fallen back to their old you know supply chains and vendors and the companies that took the you know months to retool and, and took capital investment to retool now can't sell masks anymore as as mass bans have lifted so now we have a glut of in, in some markets in some areas of ppe's that um that uh that they can't use um yet we have parts of the world where you know there's still shortages I and mean, we are seeing this you know, most pronounced for vaccines, for example, where there is a large distribution problem. Even within the U.S., we have vaccines expiring for COVID, you know, on on shelves that have not been distributed. So I think as a broad comment, you know, in our modern economy, our ability to scale up um, production, you know, can be fairly rapid. The challenge is still really on um, sort of the forecasting, the planning, the, Building that enough fat in the system to weather storms, um, and being able to rapidly redistrib- redistribute, for example, as well. Um, and uh, you know, early on when there was a, you know, thinking again, March of last year, were uh, huge fear about the shortage of ventilators uh, in the U.S. You know, compared to looking at what was going on in Spain and Italy, especially, and um, in uh, February of 2020. You know, there was a, a a wide scale shortage of ventilators across hospitals uh, in, in the U.S. But that first pandemic was uh, first wave was concentrated largely in you know in large cities in the Northeast. So there are examples of hospitals you know sharing ventilators you know across um, uh, across hospitals across uh, states. So I think the the redistribution is um, really the the key the key uh, issue here. You know? we had a famine of PPE a famine of a ventilator, so to speak, and we were able to um, uh, address that for 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 the most part, um, you know, after, after a few months, um, took extraordinary effort. Um, the question is, have we learned from this? Like, have we <laughs> taken these lessons and um, built on these relationships and these collaborations, sort of the strategic warehousing, you know, and thinking about, um, how we share some of these, uh, um, you know, resources you know, across hospitals within the healthcare system, but even across uh, healthcare systems. And you know, one example, um, you know, in, in Massachusetts uh, was, you know, the, a lot of the health system leaders got together, you know, for daily calls to be able to, you know, sponsored by the state to help plan for capacity. to know, hey, you know, my healthcare system is on diversion. You know, all our you know, beds are full, but you know, this other healthcare system may have a little bit of capacity there. So, I think a higher level of, of uh, planning is important. But part of the challenge from that was we also realized that our data sources were just not current. And I, I was speaking to healthcare leaders from uh, across the country, researchers from across the country, and you know, there's no dashboard on hospital capacity. And, um, and it took months for HHS to stand up. Um, uh, HHS Protect, their system for measuring hospital capacity um, but it's still not you know, a very dynamic sort of system and, um, and you know when in a world of EHRs and, and uh, health information exchanges you know my hope is that this uh, spurs innovation um, and I'm not sure we need more innovation the technology is there it's we need that collaboration um, and get that real real-time sense of of, uh, of where things are.
1: Do you fear that there are too few vendors for certain key items in the healthcare chain? For example, recently, Philips International announced a recall of uh, respiratory equipment, including some ventilators in, in CPAP uh, machines. And Philips products represent approximately half of all the CPAP uh, machines in the United States. Uh, this recall, by anyone's estimate, will take in excess of a year. Is this a supply chain problem that is created by just too few vendors in the mar- in a specific market? I, I do think so. Um, you know,
2: the folks example. I think it's uh, from ozone-based cleaners that were um, disrupting the foam for sound abatement in the CPAP machines. There was a risk for respiratory issues. Um, and I think that's a very, you know, sleep apnea is a, is a, a very common um, disorder. So there's a huge profound impact on not just healthcare systems, but on patients um, in a very impactful way, you know, in terms of, you know, sleep. And, but, but who knows what the long-term health consequences are, right? We know what the consequences of untreated sleep apnea are long-term. Um, so you know, it's this is not just an inconvenience, um, but this actually has tr- true potential for um, for healthcare harm to patients um, uh, in the long term. You know, there's a lot of focus on uh, hospital consolidation, hospital mergers, and we think about um, the effect of consolidation on, on prices. Um, you know, but there's much less focus on the effect of that on on quality and outcomes. And, I think that's you know, an important area we need to think about um, for our um, uh, hospital supply chain as well. As as the supply chains become increasingly concentrated, um, there are real consequences, um, you know, not, not only from a pricing front, uh, but really in terms of patient access um, and, uh, and quality and outcomes, for example, um, when hospitals have exclusive contracts with uh, a vendor, you know, And going back to my, my hernia mesh example, um, you know, very common procedure. And, you know, we didn't have very common material available to do the operations with. So either, you know, patients had to be rescheduled, um, causing inconvenience, you know, causes insurance issues. um, There are barriers to care um, uh, for patients, but also, you know, can also also have harmful health, uh, health consequences. So I think, Again, hopefully this is a wake-up call um, to think about again that there's there's lots of data on the role of competition um, in in multiple sectors of the economy, but also true in healthcare. And I think it's easy to focus on the top level, um, you know, on the corporations and the larger effects uh, on prices, but thinking in a more nuanced way down all the levels of supply chain. Um, you know there is a role for diversity and there's also a role for again going back to the margin of safety concept is you know for healthcare systems to um at least maintain a broader array of approved vendors that way there's a, there's more ability to to switch gears to a different vendor you know without going through a whole new contracting process and an approval process so you know maintaining that margin of safety even in your supply chain and vendor supply i think is is important and maintain some diversity there. And I, I think again, this focus on standardizing speaking as a surgeon again, you know, standardizing the materials and cutting down the costs of of, of, uh, of the supplies used per case, you know, is important from a value standpoint. But it's also important to realize the unintended consequences. of Going back to the you know our comments about the interdependencies and and the the interdependent bottlenecks is thinking about Yes, there's a cost to variation. There's also a value and benefit to to the variation um, and diversity of, of supplies as well. So it's important to kind of view it um, along both for both sides of the lens. Again, this goes back to the patients. Is I think if we only think narrowly about um, you know cost centers and and then we lose sight of what we're doing in healthcare. Right? We're not just trying to maximize revenue. You know, it's a very different business than you know trying to Maximize the number of cars you're producing, you know, and the revenue per car. We're in business of of, of improving people's lives by delivering high quality, high value care. So um, focusing on on being too lean is short sighted in some ways, and that's why we need to think about um, the implications of, of that for uh, for you know for high value patient care. So you know, I, I think competition is good, um, you know, for, for health systems, I, and I think competition is good for our, our supply vendors as well.
1: I, I agree. Our time is, is, is almost up, but as you know, our audience is predominantly physician leaders and healthcare executives. Do you have any more thoughts for that uh, audience on uh, supply chain issues and lessons learned from COVID-19?
2: Yeah, Mike. I think I'd summarize it in three broad themes, which we touched upon over the course of our conversation today. One is there needs to be that paradigm shift thinking about a margin of safety and valuing resiliency um, in, of it, in of itself, um, and that's true um, across um, you know the supply chain. But you know, thinking about how we deliver our care, um, that that broader concept of margin of safety is really important. But It also means we need to be able to measure that and i think you know the their the measurement science you know in that concept guys has, has um, not been as well developed um so i think that, that creates an uh, important opportunity for researchers for hospital leaders you know for clinicians to work together on thinking in a value-based way um and value not from a financial sense but value in terms of strategic and, and, and organizational mission like what are our values and how do we promote enough um margin of safety, resiliency to be able to meet, meet those values. The second part is that um, there's, you can re, re, repurchase new supplies, remanufacture supplies, but your human capital is a really precious resource. And um, and the institutional memory of your clinicians and nurses uh, is incredibly important. So, you know, we need to invest in that um, continuity, but also the pipeline of our, of our workforce, but also take advantage of new ways to uh, to collaborate and rapidly disseminate new uh, uh, new information. And the third part is that underlies all of this um, is that again we're in the business of providing really good care to, to people and I think that you know thinking about that patient level perspective um, and, 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 and not losing sight of that you know in our clinical lives but also in our uh, leadership and, and administrative lives is important because that patient perspective is what ties in that margin of safety, that system interdependency that ties in, you know, thinking about optimizing the sites of care. Um, and I think that's really the fundamental uh, thing to not
1: lose sight of. What great thoughts to end on. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Sai. Thank you so much for being a guest on Sound Practice. Great, Mike. Really uh, great to be with you. Many thanks to Dr. Tsai for his supply chain insights. He and his colleagues' research is extracting critical lessons for the next disruptive event to healthcare delivery. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making sound practice possible. Please join me next time on sound practice.
0: You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at (laughs) physicianleaders.org.